podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. Queen V. this is going to be. You know what? Let's just do this as a goof. You're fine. You're fine. All right, whatever. Okay. Hey, welcome back to another, don't you love the passion of starting off a show with whatever? So inspiring. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Another rousing locker room speech. <laughs> welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its continued influence today. My name's Will, and joining me as always are my friends. They're also my co-hosts and their names are Ray and Kat. Hi guys. That was very inspiring. I agree. <laughs> On today's show, we're going to be joined with, joined by. That's right. Get the, get the prepositions you. correct. <laughs> get your prepositions <laughs> Joined <correct>. by <laughs> singer, songwriter, Queen V, Yay. who, uh, like us, is an 80s kid who grew up, you know, listening to Top 40 music and mm-hmm. watching MTV and who, like mm-hmm. some of us, dreamed about one day being up on stage herself and unlike any of us, certainly mm-hmm. on this show, she actually went and did it. Yes. You know, ultimately <laughs> opening for uh, 1980s rock legends who she would have only seen on in videos, you know, as a, as a youth, uh, but opening for, for bands like that, like Twisted Sister, Billy Idol, and Bon Jovi, among others. And uh, Queen V returns live to the stage live this November 19th, so just in a few weeks, to the legendary cutting room in New York City. Visit queenv.com for more information about that. Uh, and a little bit later on the show, because uh, she, you know, I noticed on a recent video of hers, I think it was from 2020, she was talking about, she was answering questions on sort of a, a live show that she does uh, every Wednesday, which started during the pandemic. One of the questions I think was about how her old sound and her new sound, and she was, you know, commenting on how much it had changed and how it's her old sound still a part of her. And so inspired by that, I've got three bands for you that uh, started sounding one way at the beginning of the 1980s and sounded very different by the end of that decade. Yeah. And there's also two others, two other bands that I, I think you, Ray and Kat, are, have a particular expertise on that you'll maybe be able to help me decide mm-hmm. whether or not, you know, they belong in that category too. Sounds good. <laughs> hey, let's get caught up on 1980s news. Per Insider, fans at New York Comic Con were surprised with a very early screening of the next Ghostbusters movie. That's so cool. Uh, so Sony's uh, anticipated Ghostbusters Afterlife panel at New York Comic Con was well worth the wait. Now, I've been to New York Comic Con. I went there years ago. It's probably 10 years ago now. Uh, my oldest daughter, who's now in college, was a young girl and she was I didn't know what the word cosplay meant at the time. Like she says, dad, I want to cosplay. And I was like, what? Isn't it short for costume play? No, you're you're absolutely right. But at the time, I I don't know what I was thinking. I think what it was is she was showing me pictures of like adult women doing it, you know? And if you've seen adult (laughs) women cosplaying (laughs) and my daughter was like all of 10 years old at the time or something. And I was like, you want to do this? What is cosplaying? (laughs) And I was thinking maybe it was an S&M thing or something based on the example oh, she was showing. No. <laughs> if you don't, if you haven't seen cosplay by Yaya Han, that's the woman she introduced me to, <laughs> right? Very attractive woman who's uh, really great at making costumes. And she's really turned, she's actually parlayed it into a business. Anyway, my point being that we were at New York Comic Con 10 years ago and the lines are super long that 
So much so that, you know, waiting to do anything was, I don't know. I, I don't have the patience for it, unfortunately. But folks that were at the New York Comic Con this uh, this past week were treated to not only seeing a, a panel that featured the cast members for the upcoming Afterlife, including Carrie Coon, Finn Wardhard, <laughs> Finn Wolfhard, <laughs> Corey Wolfhart. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great, right? Yeah. Not, not even just Derek Wilson. Get Corey, no. get Derek Wilson as Corey Wolfhart in a movie. Yes. That's right. Um, they were also, uh, and it also included Jason Reitman and Ivan Reitman on this panel. They thought the uh, fans there thought they were just going to see a clip from the upcoming film, which has been delayed, as we've talked about many times since its initial release date in July of 2020. But instead, Reitman said there's a change of plans and said, quote, it's been a while since we started making this film and you are all the most patient fans on earth. And frankly, my father and I think you've waited long enough, end quote. Fans started to cheer. They knew what he was, uh, you know, leading up to. And in fact, they did uh, play the entire film for the folks gathered there. I hope they gave them time for a bathroom break. <laughs> so practical. <laughs> yeah. Here's, well, here's what I was thinking. Like, yeah, I'm just going to go watch this movie clip, hon. I'll pick you guys up oh. <laughs> in 15 minutes. <laughs> Two and a half hours later, yeah. you show up yeah. and they're sitting on the curb in the dark. Oh, no. Right. Oh, dear. They, of course, uh, <laughs> asked everybody. They implored everybody. They wanted folks to be able to see it and experience it in, a, in the theaters just like it was intended with no spoilers. And so they implored that everybody that was there, you know, maintain the secrecy uh, around the film as well. Mm -hmm. So Insider, who reported on the story, were actually there and watched the film themselves. And they said that if you're a fan of the original, you're going to love this. It's easily one of the best mm -hmm. films they've screened this year and mm -hmm. arguably more enjoyable than Marvel's Shang-Chi which our cat and I just recently saw. Hmm, I greatly mm -hmm. enjoyed that. Yeah, me so, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they, they also said that the Reitmans are correct. You want to see this without spoilers, which to me mm -hmm. makes it think that there's going to be a lot of cool spoilers or, you know, yeah. uh, surprises, <laughs> I should say. Mm -hmm. Hey, in other 1980s news, the Guardians of the Galaxy video game has a has re revealed its full track list. You know, I wasn't even realizing, I guess, that or thinking that video games mm -hmm. this to the in, you know this day have a lot of contemporary music in them. I guess depending on the game, including those uh, racing games and uh, Grand okay. Theft Auto, and I don't play those games, but I know they often have uh, contemporary music in them. Mm -hmm. Well, this uh, new Guardians of the Galaxy video game that's coming out on October 26th is going to feature 28 songs, and most of them are from the 1980s. Like, all but a three or four. I didn't see the... I, <laughs> which which are the three or four? Oh, from <laughs> the 70s? Or the are 70s? you asking from just okay. the 70s ones? Hmm, let me see. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Okay. This is the full list. All right. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm going to read a few. I you can tell me if you, you can spot the 70s song from here. These are in alphabetical okay. order, by all the right. way. Call me. I just glanced at it. Don't fear the reaper. Don't be happy. I mean, don't worry, be happy. Don't be happy. Everyone's a winner. Any any 70s songs so far? I think Call Me was from late 70s, wasn't it? 1980. Oops. Reaper. Oops. Yeah, Reaper's from the 70s. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone's okay. a winner. I don't know that song. Hot Chocolate. That's got to mm. be a 70s song, I'm going to guess, since I don't know it. 
Hot Chocolate had another big hit, though. What was their big hit? Everyone's Mm. Winner was released in 1978. Yeah. Maybe the bigger hit was a song called Hot Chocolate. Looks like they had a song for the same. I I don't know. What is this? A Hot Chocolate show? Okay, back to this list. I'm just asking. I'm just asking. So there you go, Kat. Those are probably the 70s ones. As I I I scan through the rest of this, I I think all of the rest of them are from the 1980s. Seriously, I I don't see. But you know what the coolest part of the soundtrack is? What's that? that? The Star Lord Band. Oh, yeah? Yes. The Steve unpronounceable last name guy who <laughs> is yes. Star-Lord. Mm-hmm. The songs are really good. He's a musician from back in the 80s. They're heavy metal tunes. Yeah. Um, but when he was talking about it, he bugged me because he was talking about Kiss. Huh. And he said, hmm. um, I don't look up to them now, but when I see them, it reminds me when I was 12. And I was like, what the hell kind of comment is that? Hmm. What, did, what did Kiss do to him? <laughs> It's not their fault he didn't become a musician and had to go on to whatever he does for a living. Oh, you think they were holding him accountable for his career trajectory (laughs) somehow? I have no idea what he meant by that comment. It seemed very weird. Hmm. (laughs) The songs are really good. I I like their addition. He's a good musician. He's a good singer. That's cool. Very good. Yeah, I saw those uh, videos that they have in connection with uh, his uh, music as well. Looks fun. Yeah, Hmm. because... um, uh, Somehow or another, Star-Lord got his name from his favorite 80s band, which is Star-Lord. Hmm. That's why he picked the name. Okay. But there's no such band. So for the game, they've created the Star-Lord band. Oh, That's cool. I get that. Oh, wow. That makes yeah. a lot more sense. Okay. Huh. Very good. So yeah, we look forward to that. It's another video game that Ray won't play, so he'll never hear any of these songs in the game. <laughs> but hey, he doesn't have to. He could just, you know, go on uh, Spotify or something, I guess. I'll just listen to the soundtrack and go out in my front yard and high kick and throw punches in the, the yard. <laughs> Very good. Well, the Guardians of the Galaxy movies are some of my favorite soundtracks, so maybe I'll check out this video game soundtrack. Y- yes. I probably know all the songs, anyway, or almost all the songs. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And, and those yeah. films, I was so pleased, both films, to hear songs from my childhood that I grew up listening to that I thought- Oh my gosh. And I, and I didn't realize, or I guess, that anybody else would have you know known those songs because some of them were more obscure. Can I just tell you, when we were sitting in the theater, yeah. when the movie started in that, I forget the name of the song. Mr. Blue Sky? Um, no, no, the other one, the slow one. I'm not in love. Oh, that one. Wait. Come and get your love. No, the one where he's um, he's sitting there with his headphones on. Oh, when he's a little boy and his mom's dying of cancer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Mm. And it's not that that song was special to me. Yeah. But it's one of those songs that I remember hearing on the radio, in the car, or in the cabin, my grandparents' cabin, and it transported me. I was like, I I held onto the arms of the seat. I was like, oh my gosh. And the whole movie was was a sentimental ride. Just those songs were astonishing for me. So, yeah. I agree. Cool. Same thing for me. Yep. Yeah. Yep. In, in other 1980s news, uh, the new kids on the block announced their 2022 tour with Salt and Salt and Pepper, Rick Astley, and In Vogue. The veteran boy band announced their mixtape tour 2022, which is a massive 55 date trek, supported by fellow icons of the 80s and 90s. Uh, when asked why the tour was called mixtape, Donnie Wahlberg explained, it's quote, just like a mixtape. <laughs> I just realized how <laughs> circular that is. Um, yes. But meaning, he went on, he went on to say, these shows are going to take audiences through all the emotions, uh, end quote. Yeah, but I thought he meant like they were just going to play other people's songs, like a mixtape, oh. and it would be a lot better concert. 
Look at that. <laughs> he thought that it was going to be a mixtape of all metal songs from the 80s. <laughs> yeah, and they're just like standing around playing it for us. Or they were just going to pass them out at the door and say, yeah. thank you for coming. Uh, this was $175? Really? Yeah. Do you guys ever actually make a mixtape? Yes. Of course. Not until, um, like I made copies of music for friends in high school, mm. but it wasn't until, until I got to huh. college that it, I realized how much of a thing it was. And so I was making mixtapes and people were making me mixtapes hmm. and, uh, and each song was carefully chosen and yep. full of meaning and <laughs> clever titles. <laughs> Did you get the, uh, yeah. wait, is that the one you're made or the one that was made for you? Both. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I tried to be clever. I don't know if I was that like clever. <laughs> but did you, uh, did you miss all the subtle clues in the ones you were given about they were all love songs or, or like songs about why doesn't she like me? <laughs> From a guy in the friend zone? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think I got a mixtape from anybody that I wasn't sure about how they felt. I think. <laughs> so how about you? Did you guys ever make any or receive any? I don't think either. No. For me. Uh, we used to make these things all the time when I was in high school and even okay. eighth grade because money doesn't grow on trees. So we would mm -hmm. all buy different mm -hmm. albums and mm -hmm. then you would make a mixtape of the best songs off the albums you bought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my buddies would do the same. We'd swap them so we could figure out what we liked. Very good. So you were just sharing music. It wasn't doing yeah, We weren't like you, like copying <laughs> entire albums and breaking the law. I, hey, I wasn't selling them. <laughs> I didn't sell anything. <laughs> I think Kat was saying you weren't trying to convey a message to anyone by doing it. It's just, these are songs you No, like. no, no. We were just trying to figure out how to make our money go the, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the, the longest we could. Right. So you just, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I distinctly remember I made a, a tape with, uh, had NWA, mm -hmm. it had Cool Mo D, it, it probably had Easy E because I was really into him too mm -hmm. for a while, but it had all these rap songs because I was like the only one I knew who was into rap at that time. And then uh, I gave it to these guys and within like two weeks, like everybody in our school was like into that. <laughs> it was right when uh, that it just broke. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was like, what the hell is going on? What are all these kids dressing like this for? <laughs> You were ahead of the curve. I didn't know this was a movement. <laughs> I'm holding back my uh, commentary. Look, the three of us do this now. Kat did it last, on the last episode, so we're all guilty of this. Where we say mm -mm. what we're not going to say, but we actually say it at that time. I'm holding back my commentary Let's... where he say Ray's ahead of the curve for Northeast Ohio. He's like, when it finally broke in well, 1988. No, that's, that's actually true because here, our radio stations yes. are at least three to four months behind New York and California. Easily. But not when it came to Duran Duran. You guys were ahead. That's true. With the Duran yes. Duran. Yeah. Well, yeah. But we were listening yeah. to hip hop on the north, you know, in, in the northeast of the country or the east coast of the country since 1979. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I'm just Whatever. saying that's how it worked, though, because yeah. it's just, just, just how it worked. It this, took a while mm -hmm. to get here. This is my mantra to myself. It's not a contest. It's not a contest. I, I have a habit of trying to make everything into a contest, not a contest. Why do you do that? I, I don't know. It's my upbringing. It's my upbringing. Have you huh. met my parents? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, your parents are wonderful people it, who don't do that. It's a, it's actually a product of New Jersey, I think. In Jersey City in particular. Um, but, the, you know, the mixtapes I made were DJ mixtapes. So they were actually literally mixing songs together. But it wasn't to try to, uh, it was try to try to make people dance. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well... I feel like I want to make you a mixtape. Uh, do you I have to, to decode it? a mixtape. That sounds like so, work. Oh. No decoding, no. 
<laughs> I don't know if I have the right equipment to make mixtapes. <laughs> oh, it's actually going to be on cassettes? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Cool. I have a boombox. <laughs> All right. I, I think I have a project. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the trek kit kicks off May 10th in Cincinnati, Ohio. And while the uh, kids on, New Kids on the Block will make stops along the East and West Coast, the Mixtape 2022 tours pays special attention to the mid-sized cities in the South and Midwest that other bands often overlook. Cool. In another 1980s news, a giant freaking robot is reporting that, yes, indeed, Phoebe Waller-Bridge will be taking over the lead for the huh. franchise Indiana Jones. Huh, where'd we hear that? Huh. <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked because we talked about this several weeks ago now. We were saying that Doomcock was reporting this. Now, I look into this mm-hmm. giant freaking robot. Their sources, I think, are probably the same exact unidentified <laughs> source that Doomcock is relying on. And yet they refer to each other each other as like sort of reinforcing their story. Like, hey, there's another outlet also reporting this. Yeah, you're both reporting each other's story. I mean- Well, technically we reported it too. So now there's three of us reporting oh, this. Damn. So it must be oh, true. Oh no. no, we're part of that loop? Yeah. Well, I will say this. I, I thought this was interesting because they, they have now added a new element according to their mm-hmm. source that told them much what Doomcock has been reporting, that there's going to be some sort of time travel element that ultimately leads to uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge taking over uh, the role of Indiana Jones for Harrison Ford. More on that in a moment, because Doomcock just had yesterday another report on it that is just another... (laughs) Oh no, I missed it. (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you what it is. It's really funny. Okay. (laughs) He doesn't think it's funny because he believes it's true. But according to the giant... This is where, Ray, I think that we can just debunk this whole thing right now. According to the source, the studio is also trying to get Shia LaBeouf back for his mutt role. I'm actually excited about that now. Bullshit. Oh. Bullshit. Bullshit. No, you're not. I will play a clip of you saying how you hate you hate him in that movie that you said uh, just no, a few no. weeks ago. Once again, he, he has grown on me over the years. Or over the last couple of weeks. Right. So Giant Freaker Robot says that they didn't learn the finer details of what Lucasfilm has planned for the story. But uh, it did seem fairly likely that uh, they're imagining Phoebe Waller-Bridge as the unnamed daughter George Lucas previously created for Indiana Jones. Now, apparently there, this is a part of a story that uh, came out in the young Indiana Jones Chronicle TV show that we had in the eighties and early nineties. Some folks were, did find it curious that Mutt was uh, revealed to be Indiana Jones's son in the crystal skull film, which was the last one to come out left wondering, wait, what about the daughter that you had uh, revealed a couple decades ago in that other program? Maybe they were retconning mm-hmm. him out. Now people are believing that no, Phoebe Wallerbridge may very well be that daughter. I mean, this is just going off the rails. It's just, come on. <laughs> I don't believe any of it. You know that. And I can't wait until this is all proven false. I can't wait to be in the theater and just go, ha. <laughs> I'm going to be sitting two rows behind you, just waiting, <laughs> waiting for that. And then if you do do it, because I am wrong and you're right, I'll be like, that's for me. That was for me, guys. He's fine. He's no threat. He's just <laughs> Now, in an unrelated but important story, I think, in the context of all these alleged leaks, Kevin Smith recently discussed on his podcast, Fat Man Beyond, that the Marvel, that Marvel slash Disney has, quote, secret police. According to his sources, the Marvel Secret Police will leave false information on sets and give false information during auditions as a way of dealing in subterfuge. You mean like when you say, when you mean like you say He-Man's going to be in the cartoon, that kind of subterfuge? Oh my God, you're almost exactly quoting Doomcock. I saw that video. (laughs) So I'm not convinced that, you know, this isn't what's happening with this Doomcock nonsense and giant freaking robot. 
In his uh, in his latest report that I alluded to earlier, Doomcock reveals that uh, the latest leak to reach his underground bunker. Not only is Phoebe Waller-Bridge replacing Indiana Jones, but as Doomcock says, Kathleen Kennedy is erasing Indiana Jones from existence. Um, what? In the final moments of Indiana Jones Five, according to his script, uh, the leak uh, scripts leaked to Doomcock. We'll see the villain played by Antonio Banderas attach a device to the young Indiana Jones. Now remember, in this film, according to Doomcock, there's two Indiana Joneses, one from the 40s, one from the 60s. Mm-hmm. And they're both in the same time now in the 40s fighting the bad guys. Antonio mm-hmm. Banderas attaches a device to the one from the 40s and he vanishes. Uh, as a result, it also eradicates <laughs> the older Henry Jones because you got to think about like a Back to the Future type scenario. If the young mm-hmm. guy disappeared and never existed, the old guy doesn't exist. And as a result, because this is what Kathleen Kennedy's goal is, according to Doomcock, <laughs> Indiana Jones is no more. None of his adventures ever happened. That means Raiders never occurred. Temple never occurred. Last Crusade, Crystal Skull. Uh, good, good thing about the Crystal Skull. <laughs> and the reason why she's doing this, he says, is to enact revenge on her detractors, including Dave Filoni, who is the, you know, hmm. who's been a longtime producer of Star Wars uh, film. Uh, TV shows, including the animated Star Wars series and most recently The Mandalorian. And she's mad at him because he's retconning the Disney sequels, the sequel films that she produced in an upcoming Disney Plus series. Hmm. So that's how mad she is. Now, there's some problems with this immediately, right? I mean, just logic problems. Well, immediately, the first problem would be if they plan to make her the daughter, then she would no longer exist, as would Mutt no longer exist. Exactly. Yep. Yep, that, that, exactly. And that fil- the Which, film itself wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. Right. So, right. Yeah. yeah, but then you could technically, which would be kind of cool, Antonio Banderas mm-hmm. he could takes become over. Indiana Jones. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> He's the bad guy in the story. <laughs> yes, but as the- Anybody but a woman. He's able to take a villain now. No, but as the movie unfolds and none of it happened, all of a sudden it cuts to the end and he's mm-hmm. got the, the hat and the whip and everything. And he's dressed just like him mm-hmm. and the music starts playing and it's the opening scene of Raiders. Oh, I see. Some kind of <laughs> But loop. it's Antonio. It's yeah. Antonio <laughs> instead of Harris. And now he's the bad guy and now we're rooting for Belloc. Mm. Right. <laughs> Who's now played by Harrison Ford. It's really trippy. <laughs> it's Ooh. so confusing. He's played by Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's one problem. And then the other problem with this Kathleen Kennedy angry with Dave Filoni thing is that she's producing those shows. What is that? The shows that are supposedly retconning Star Wars sequels. She's the producer of those shows. Oh, this is this is the dumbest. The thing, look, the thing that infuriates me it about him no is sense. that he's taking advantage of people. Hey, hey, yeah. there's always a thing that says these are just rumors. Mm-hmm. He that's, never says any of this is true. That's it's how for it entertainment. Starts. Of course purposes. he does that. Of course he does that because he doesn't want to get sued. Right. In Obviously. part. <laughs> in part. But at the end, his call to action is, folks, if you don't want these things to happen, you have to speak up now. Get angry. Stay. I think he, his sign off is stay angry. <laughs> All right. That's, uh, that's enough of that nonsense. All right. That was 1980s news. If you like our show, you may also like Doomcock. That's fine. But for entertainment purposes, right? Ray, Ray, Ray watches, I'm not going to say any of this. If you like our show, <laughs> you probably don't like Doomcock. Well, that's not true. I like our show and I like Doomcock. All right, here's two things. 
If you like our show, you either don't like Doomcock or you're one of the hosts of the show. (laughs) Please like, subscribe, rate, review. Let folks know. And also reach out to us and let us know your ideas for future episodes. What's your favorite Halloween movie? Uh, Do you think Doomcock is, uh, you know, uh, misogynistic? You can uh, fill out our form on uh, 1980snow.com, message us on Facebook, or send me an email at will at 1980snow.com. All right. Hey, today on our show, as I mentioned, we're going to be speaking with the singer, songwriter, performer, Queen V in just a few minutes. Uh, But before that, I wanted to talk with you guys about uh, three bands in particular that uh, had one sound at the beginning of the 1980s and had a completely different sound come the end of the decade. Um, And then there's two others that I want to run by you and get your thoughts about whether or not their sound likewise changed. I think maybe all these comments I'm going to provide to you come from treblezine.com, although I did research, uh, or I did come across information from thebrag.com and even mtv.com, but there's ultimately three bands that seem to me, after listening to these, that had the most uh, profound change from the beginning of the 1980s to the end. There's some others we've got we can mention. There's dozens I'm sure you could probably rattle off off the top of your head, right? But these, again, big changes here. So first one here is Talk Talk. And uh, do you even remember Talk Talk? No, I I don't remember them at all. Oh. Are you a fan of Uh, Talk Talk? No, I wouldn't say I'm a fan, but I remember that name. So you may remember them from their 1984 single, It's My Life, which I can't say without hearing Bon Jovi singing it. Isn't it? Oh, no, I can't do this. You can do it. It? It's my life. Don't you forget something like that. Yes, that's right. That's it. That's it. it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if those are the words, but it's exactly right. Okay, Hmm. I did that. That's kind of ringing a bell. I think I've heard that song. Yeah. Yeah. See, thank you, Kat. So, it's my life reached number thirty-one on the U.S. Billboard Hot One Hundred and was certified silver in the U.K. So, uh, yeah, according to Treblezine's Jeff Tarek, during their debut album, mm-hmm. The Party's Over, Talk Talk sounded like a lot of the other synth-driven new wave acts that came out of the UK around that time. Yaz, which I love, Soft Cell, Simple mm-hmm. Minds, and early Depeche Mode. But after they f- scored a few hits, group leader Mark Hollis sought more exploratory sounds and less traditional pop structures. By 1988's Spirit mm-hmm. of Eden, the group were almost completely unrecognizable as the one that had crashed the charts just six years earlier. And by 1991's Laughing Stock, Hollis, with drummer Lee Harris, created a work of exquisite and powerful beauty. These are Jeff Turek's words, like I mentioned. Six tracks from improvisational sessions Hmm. into soulful genre-breaking exercises. If you listen to this, you wouldn't recognize them at all. It sounds exactly like what is described. It's a guy, it reminds me of my friends who would rent out a studio like in the 1980s, you know, or the 90s. And they would just quote unquote jam. Yeah, jam bands suck horribly. <laughs> oh my God, that's one of the worst things to experience so bad. Occasionally it sounds like a song, but very different than those those early couple of hits. Uh, and by, by this point, they're no longer a band playing pop music, but a, a group of people using the studio to channel spirits. And that's the way this guy describes it. That, you got to hear this. Seriously, it's weird, ethereal <laughs> stuff. All right, the second mm. one. Yes, ministry. So uh, writing for Treble Zine, Paul Pearson suggests this party trick to play on your favorite industrial metal fan. (laughs) (laughs) Slip on Ministry's 1983 debut album with sympathy when they're not paying close attention. See if they can handle the fragile boyish vocals, synth string beds, or the lightly Latin percussion. Yes. Then 
blow their minds by revealing it's none other than ministry. But following the, the, a transitional album, Twitch, ministry went, and this is again, Paul Pearson's words, full aggro with The Land of Rape and Honey, an album which decried political hypocrisy and ex- exploding institutionalism. Yes, Al went from, Al Jorgensen, the main ministry guy, went from pretty boy Depeche Mode kind of guy mm. to in industrial pierced face guy like really quickly. Yeah. There's not a, there's not like a scrap of skin left on his face now that isn't pierced. (laughs) I don't think he looks how his music sounds. (laughs) Yes. And I think that was intentional along the way. And uh, Ray and I were talking about this earlier to that to this day, Jorgensen disowns that earlier album. I think he did go on to say, well, it was okay. <laughs> I was I was reading up on them. Oh, is that right? It was yeah, okay. a little further in time. It was uh, yeah, yeah. It wasn't bad. <laughs> I think he finally just gave up because there was no way he could stop it from getting out. You know, they sort of <laughs> broke, I guess, in this sort of industrial rock scene just right around a time or just before Nine Inch Nails. What I didn't know was that the title "Head Like a Hole," which is you know a classic uh, Nine Inch Nails song comes from a sample Reznor videotape from a ministry concert back in 1987 and later used in the song. In fact, the, ni- the name Nine Inch Nails was also taken from the same tape where during a portion, Jorgensen compares ministry to a man with a tall nail hammered into his head, creating a hole there, saying, quote, listening to ministry is like having a nine inch nail hammered into your head like a hole. Wow. <laughs> that was convenient that he that he heard that and just took it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess there's no doubt then that ministry influenced Nine Inch Nails. Um, so, I guess good thing they changed their sound. Otherwise, uh, you know, Trent Reznor might have sounded more like uh, New Kids on the Block or something. I guess. <laughs> so the third band I wanted to mention is probably no surprise to you. is my favorite, Beastie Boys. Mm-hmm. Long before they worked with legendary Def Jam producer Rick Rubin, the Beasties were a punk band. You know this. Absolutely. Their BB even is the same alliteration as Bad Brains because they loved Bad Brains so much. So in the beginning of the 1980s, Adam Harvitz, Mike Diamond, Adam Yock, along with two others, John Barry, who played guitars, and Kate Schellenbach, who played drums, mm-hmm. were a, a, a hardcore punk band. They began as supporting acts for the likes of the Dead Kennedys, Bad Brains, and the Misfits in iconic New York City clubs like uh, CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. <laughs> if you hear these clips of them doing hip-hop like back in the punk uh, <laughs> clubs, it's, it is funny. It, it, I think it's MCA or something that has like lyrics written on a piece of paper. Oh, it was in that documentary they showed. Yeah, that, right? it was in the documentary, which is funny. <laughs> it was so like awkward. It was like a kid <laughs> at school, like, I don't know, reading a poem or something. <laughs> so, and, and this is actually a comment made by the uh, writer in Trouble Zine, Adam Blyweiss, I'm going to say. Um, I thought this was funny. He said fans would find those early moments more off-putting than I did it with a wiffle ball bat. (laughs) (laughs) Still funny. But going back to that, their early group, you still had them doing a lot of the, you know, inside and outside, you know, well-known pop cultural references that, Mm. you know, just permeate all of their rap songs in every decade and every incarnation of the Beastie Boys. Mm -hmm. And they never lost their chops because even as they evolved into a more hip hop band, and certainly they were like a pop hip hop band, maybe, you know, within the Def Jam sort of era, Mm -hmm. later in later decades, the nineties and two thousands saw them actually returning to play instruments. And that combination to me was probably among some of my favorite songs. So they're actually playing instruments like they did in the punk rock days, but still rapping with the skills that they had developed, you know, later in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Again, there's tons. I know you've, you know, more of these than I, tons of groups that began as punk and became, you know, pop. We could go on and on. 
or became something else, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a, there's so many of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, right, right. So, so the Beasties turned from uh, punk to hip hop after John Barry and Kate Schellenbach left the group. Uh, and there's many more examples throughout the 1980s whose sound also changed after they had a personnel change. No Doubt, who began in that decade, mm-hmm. comes to mind, for example. But this got me thinking about bands that we like that had maybe personnel changes that also may or may not have led to different sounds. And mm-hmm. for example, I'm curious what you think, Ray, about Van Halen. You know, in the 1980s mm-hmm. saw was ushered in with David Lee Roth fronting Van Halen. We've talked about it many times, even on recent episodes, but mm-hmm. somewhere in the mid 1980s, uh, David Lee Roth exits and Sammy Hagar comes in. Did you think that changed the sound of Van Halen? Yeah, because with Dave, the songs were all ain't talking about love. Mm -hmm. And with Sammy, it's (laughs) why can't this be love? (laughs) And this is something that I've actually heard. um, I believe David said it on uh, the Joe Rogan show when he was asked that question. Okay. Okay. What's the difference? And he said, you know, we were a party band and, they were just sad saps who <laughs> were singing about love songs and not partying and, you know, okay. scoring girls. So I think that's the big change for them is they went from being everybody's go-to party band to everybody's like, oh, I'm going to put this on the mixtape for the girl I like. <laughs> oh, nice connection there. <laughs> and I think about, as far, you, you know, you're the expert on this, but in my sort of layperson's sort of anecdotal, you know, experience here, David Lee Roth, Van Halen era, we have a jump comes to mind. Other than that, not a lot of synths in the songs. Sammy Hagar, a whole lot of synths. Eddie's playing a lot of synth uh, music now or tracks in their songs. Uh, that's uh, that's one of the wedges that was driven between Eddie and Dave. Because mm. mm. Eddie was like, I really like playing piano and synth and I want to put a bunch more in our songs. Mm-hmm. And it was only because jump was so good. Uh, I think Panama has a little bit of it in there. Yeah. I feel like it does, yeah. Um, and he basically said, I want to go that direction more and play less guitar mm. and write more love songs and stuff. And mm-hmm. that's really the wedge was Dave was like, uh, you're the greatest guitar player on the planet. Mm. Why the hell would we play keyboard songs? I see. <laughs> so speaking about great guitar players, Kat, I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you about this because, you know, we talked about sure. in a recent uh, article uh, celebrating uh, Duran or acknowledging Duran Duran's uh, 40th anniversary here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this article uh, from The Guardian, again, just from a couple of months ago, pointed out that the departure of Andy Taylor, quote, altered the car- careful equilibrium of the band for years. Taylor had mm-hmm. offered a musical counterpoint to Rhodes, end quote. Uh, Taylor leaves in 1986. Of course, we've, it's at that point we've got these different uh, bands. We got Power Station and Arcadia, Arcadia, mm-hmm. uh, where the guys, the Taylors, split and had different things. Mm-hmm. Notorious is the first album after Taylor's departure. Does Duran Duran sound different following starting with Notor- Notorious? Um, Were you still listening to them at that time? And that's <laughs> oh, sorry, that was for Ray. <laughs> oh, that was a cheap I shot. know that was for Ray. <laughs> I I do think it is different. I do, but not in a bad way. Yeah, I certainly enjoyed it, and even some of their more recent stuff I also enjoy. But it definitely has more of a a dance, mm. uh, disco kind of feel I to see. it then perhaps would be there if Andy Taylor were involved, I think. Yeah. Still good for me. Yeah, but. of course. No, they're great. You know, well, thinking about these bands, and in particular your comments about um, ministries, uh, frontman Al Jurgensen, yeah, Kat, when you made that comment about, it's it's fine what he said, you know, it's this idea of taking ownership of at least, you know, sort of where your roots were. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, referring back to the video that I saw of Queen V talking about, you know, one of the comments she made to someone who asked her about her original sound being so different than her current sound was that she owns it, you know, it's still part yes. of her and it informs her. And, you know, she like, yeah. like the best of us evolve. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Hey, with that, in a moment, we'll be joined by our guest today, Queen V. I came here in a time machine that you invented. Now I need your help to get back to the year 1980. Our guest today got her start playing in legendary New York City venues such as CBGB and Don Hills. Since then, our guest has won a number of competitions, embarked on two high-profile tours, and opened for 1980s icons, including Twisted Sister, Billy Idol, Sebastian Bach, and Bon Jovi. Additionally, our guest has collaborated with a number of artists throughout the course of her career, including Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine and Lemmy who co-wrote her track, Wasted. Today, our guest continues to focus on expanding and evolving her sound and songwriting, making frequent trips to Nashville while maintaining her New York City roots. And while the pandemic put touring on hold, our guest returns to the stage at The Cutting Room in New York City this November 19th. For more information, follow Queen V on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and visit her at www.queenv.com. Please welcome to the show, Queen V. Hey, guys. You know, it just just occurred to me right now, uh, maybe I should call you Queen, or maybe I should call you V. Maybe both. (laughs) But it just occurred to me now, that's a very 1980s moniker, Queen V. Yeah, you know, when I was... um when I was sort of formulating the whole band idea in the nineties, actually, you know, where we went to college together at Drew, I think my freshman orientation was like, I'm putting together a band. That's it. Wow. <laughs> Back then. It's, right. you know, it it's very much a can do name, you know, growing up with, um, you know, people like Joan Jett or Stevie Nicks or Blondie, you know, Debbie Harry. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, it just was this like very like self-empowered, attitude um that i really wanted to embrace and kind of challenge myself to mm-hmm. be the debate you know and truly it's how music makes me feel rock and roll makes me feel so lean v and it suck so here i am awesome. so hmm as a clarification then first of all i wasn't at that orientation i, I might have I, I wouldn't have done anything because one of my <laughs> memories of you performing or one of my memories of you is performing, of course, at school on our campus. Cause as you mentioned, we did go to school together. All three of us went to school together. Mm-hmm. And even though I was in acted in plays at the school, seeing you perform with the band, I thought that requires some other kind of courage that I do <laughs> not have. Um, and it was not even just the, you know, being able to sing, which I can't, I, I can't sing like you can sing, of course. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's just something that, uh, some sort of guts that I had not <laughs> connected with. <laughs> Were you, did you always feel so, I guess, courageous? I mean, that's, that's kind of you to say. Thank you for kind words, first of all. Uh, you know, I, I knew at a very, very young age, that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. mm-hmm. so I think the courageous part is, 
um, having the guts to choose it as a career and a lifestyle because it's not an easy life. Sure. And, you know, my, when I graduated college, my parents were not happy that I was coming to They're like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, you're, and you're doing what? And what's this music you're doing? Um, but yeah, I, I always, um, you know, I started writing songs when I was eight. I, you know, saw Freddie Mercury, you know, a live queen um, concert and when I was five and I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. You know, when you were five, well, I had older siblings, mm. right? So, okay. they, so, they, so, you know, they would show me things. I mean, I, I specifically remember my brother teaching me to read on the album cover of news of the world. Wow. <laughs> I know, it's like bizarre, but that's what happens when you're young as a five and you've got told mm-hmm. this brothers. So you have all this other musical influence coming, you know, mm-hmm. at you. But, um, but acting is no joke, Will. I mean, I, I've done a little bit of it and, and chat, you know, as well, I mean, theater is, whew, you, you've got to have some, some, uh, some really strong inner fortitude. Film is one thing, but theater is, is it's real. I mean, there's, I, I experienced a little bit at, at Drew and I, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you remember all of that, I, but <laughs> you know, I have to go into that part. <laughs> <laughs> I just was noticing something um, that we each were in a different um, segment of performing because uh, Veronica with your voice, right? And music and Will with um, the spoken word acting. And my thing was with the dance department. I really, I I was involved with the theater department, but I never took a class. It was the dance classes, the modern dance that I was into. So it just struck me as those are three different ways of performing. And I would, you could not catch me singing in front of anyone and acting, speaking. Oh my goodness. Mm. <laughs> no, but dancing. Yeah. Sure. I'm fine. And I yeah. really remember you performing, Kat. Thank you. I have this, this, this vision of you, but listen, Thank you. the three of us, if we spin us into one person, we'd be triple threat, right? <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I thought Kat was suggesting we start a super group of some kind. Yeah. Hmm. Well, yes. <laughs> right? Let's I do it. I can see you interpreting uh, Queen V's music already. Mm-hmm. And I'm just mm-hmm. saying like darkness or, or whatever the theme is. I, I don't know. <laughs> hope. I guess your music would be more like hope. Props to you, Kat. I, I have tried yeah. to. I've taken the dance lessons. I've like tried to, you know, I've dabbled in some musical theater. And I was just like, I'm just, I'm not a dancer. Mm-hmm. Like I'll dance in my kitchen. and like, all Sure. That. Right on. Yeah. So props to you for for your natural talent and all the hard work that you've done. You are very kind to say that in the same to you and Will, actually. It's a love fest. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned going to uh, see Freddie Mercury early on and having older siblings. Were your earliest influences then musicians from the 1970s or earlier eras? Um, I'd say they probably started uh, much further back. So Mm. my dad was very much into... Um, you know, jazz and classical music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, I think my siblings were into more um, like Beatles and Stones and all that. And then, yes, it migrated into the 70s, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom, weirdly, um, was into country music. So <laughs> I had a little, little everything. Um, but, you know, it's funny because I've been thinking about, um, you know, the decade of the 80s and the music and how, you know, how much of it was, you know, a reaction almost to the seventies and it always is. And I'm sure you guys have talked about this many, many times, um, mm-hmm. but there's always this sort of like wave that comes through and part of it is reactionary and part of it is just, well, now those things from the decade, decade before were givens, 
you know, mm-hmm. so now we can, now we grow on this. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would, I would just say there's, there's great music in every decade, but being at that, you know, that seminal age in the eighties, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> it was <laughs> quite a time for music. You know, I've spoken to some other guests about this, that, you know, for example, punk was born in the seventies, but you know, started early eighties and certainly influenced bands for the, through the 1990s. Uh, hip hop didn't exist until the late seventies and the eighties. It was quite a time for new, for innovation in music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you mm-hmm. remember, I was just thinking about this the other day. I have a very specific memory. I think the first record I ever purchased was a 45 at a Woolworth in Jersey city, New Jersey, where I lived. And it was, uh, men at work, uh, down under. <gasps> Oh, that was my first. It. That was your two. first too. Oh, that was wow. my first one. Wow, yeah. Oh my gosh! I think it was like a dollar, maybe a dollar twenty-five, right? <laughs> I probably took my money God. out of the couch to pay for it or something, right? Nineteen eighty-one. Eighty-one. Uh, yeah, it had to be. Yeah, eighty-one, eighty-two, somewhere around there. Yep, yep. I remember mm-hmm. walking down the avenue. How I, I can't even imagine letting my eleven-year-old now walk as far as we walked to get to a store that sold records. But that's the only thing. Right. Do, do you remember the first record that you? I guess, considered your own or bought on your own? Um, I do. I was, I was a little young. It was a little, uh, I was younger. Um, it was the late seventies mm-hmm. and it was actually two records at the same time, which mm-hmm. kind of explains a lot. Um, <laughs> yes. It was Olivia Newton-John <gasps> record. Yes. Uh, one. And mm-hmm. that was, you can't remember the name right now. Um, and then Donna Summer. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So Giorgio Moroder. I mean, just like, yeah, incredible. incredible. I love that album. Yeah. And the imagery on that, you had the album, right? But I love that imagery on the album. It did. I think it folded out even, or maybe it didn't, but it had that great. Oh yeah. Hard thing to explain to your parents like this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Likewise. I remember talking my parents into letting me buy another 45, which was when doves cry. Prince, which was shortly thereafter, I think my Men at Work album, but they were with me now. And it's like, can I please? I don't have any money. I'm a child. But... So was the Freddie Mercury, the first concert you attended was at five years no, of no, age? No, it was just, it was some live footage I saw. Oh, like, oh on, okay. On TV. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. No, my first concert was Culture Club. Whoa. That was my first concert. No way. <laughs> yes way at the um, Brendan Byrne Arena. Arena. <laughs> I was there. I wonder if we were there at the same time. Um, <laughs> you got to get ticket stubs out now and figure well, I, I have it. I have it. <laughs> uh, my older brother brought me and he's like nine years older than me. And he was just like shrinking in his seat. Oh, uh, oh, so it was your idea. <laughs> he was taking oh, you to help you. Oh, like I was like begging somebody to take me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And I just remember <laughs> like, six, you know, first concert. I mean, just, it was incredible. And you know, you were there. But yes. I, I, you know, when that album hit, and it was just, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. just standing there, just like sobbing because mm-hmm. I was so wanted to be part of the show. Wow. Oh, you, yeah, you wanted <laughs> to be. <laughs> church, this is oh, I feel mm-hmm. like you know. So, oh, that's amazing. I was happy being in the audience, but yes, I can picture you. <laughs> you wanted to be one of the dancers. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> I was indeed dancing and my mom who took us, this small group of friends and I complained about not being able to sit down the whole time because everyone was up dancing. (laughs) She couldn't, couldn't see anything sitting down. I do remember though, my first rock show, if you want to put it that way, was um, at the garden, Peter Gabriel, the sledgehammer tour. Wow. I mean, what a, what an induction into a rock show. 
was, mm-hmm. that was pretty good. So you mentioned if you wrote your first song at eight years of age. Yeah. Do you wow. still, do you still have it somewhere? I do. It's terrible. <laughs> you oh. haven't thought to like, uh, you haven't taken it out and thought you're going to maybe rearrange, you know, arrange it or edit it or. I mean, I, it's, it's there, oh, you sorry. know, it's, it's just. I've written much better versions of it since I've okay. had this. Okay. <laughs> It'd be great if you were like, yes, it's cry for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? That maybe, the, <laughs> maybe the older one was cry for an hour and now it's, oh, it's evolved it to crying for a minute. Oh, yeah. <laughs> writing is rewriting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, the writing process has, has been uh, really interesting over the years. I mean, just the different things you end up writing about you know, different parts of your life and, you know, the different types of, you know, style of music, um, you know, going from, I mean, in like the late eighties when, so then I'm in high school and all that. And I'm like, I mean, listening to everything, you know, mm-hmm. as much Janet Jackson as I am to Melissa Etheridge, as I am mm-hmm. to, you know, Pink Floyd or, you know, mm-hmm. and all of it. And, you know, Run DMC. Yes. Run DMC. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know, it it was always just, it's always just been such a cathartic thing for me, um, Mm -hmm. being a little bit shy and nonverbal, if you will, which Mm. I know sounds shocking, but it's true. Um, I can't believe that. A voice, you know, uh, in music and being able to write and, you know, I'm so grateful that I'm still able to do that, you know, at this part of my life write about whatever it is that's, that's happening. Mm-hmm. So you make me think about when we were talking about earlier, me saying that I was comfortable on stage and I couldn't imagine, you know, doing what you were doing. I think this sounds, you know, this is trite. You've heard lots of other folks say this, this idea that it's easier maybe for an introverted person. I, th- I'm, I think I'm an int- introvert extrovert on those charts, you know, whatever those types of folks are. Yeah. Am- like, ambivert. <laughs> just, just like yeah. this weird dichotomy of things that are seem opposing, but somehow work that we can hide in a character. It's easy to be on stage because I'm not being myself. Mm-hmm. It, it was, did Queen V become a character of sorts since you're saying that you are somewhat of a shy person? That's a great question. Um, no one's really asked me that question. So thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, I think that, you know, when I was first coming out with the Queen V idea and the band and, you know, even with my first EP, you know, back in 2002, um, it was very much like a, a coat you put on, you know, like a coat of armor. And I was, you know, I had a lot of fire. I had a lot of, um, some anger, you know, at just being a woman in rock and, you know, and all the things that came with that, um, sure. in the business. So just decided to be, go independent and stay independent, mm-hmm. um, which has mm-hmm. been a great choice for me, but I feel so lucky that, you know, with all the things I've gone through in my life, personally, professionally, that I came to a point about, um, you know, seven, eight years ago, where I said, you know, I just want to pick up an acoustic guitar again and dial back the distortion. I'm tired of yelling at people. Like, this has been great. And I, I meant it and I'm there, but like, I just want to pick up an acoustic guitar and just like, like go back to the beginning. And uh-huh. See what else there is to say. And I started writing love songs and just Mm -hmm. stuff that's just a little bit more, um, just from a little bit different point of view, something that's just more personal, um, if you a different part of the personal. And so, you know, it was nice to be able to, you know, shed back the layers, take off the coat, if you will, and just strip it down bare bones. And I've, you know, the one, one of the, 
biggest lessons I've learned in, you know, listening to punk rock and just knowing, you know, a lot about the culture and DIY is, you know, the the most brutal punk rock thing you can do is be brutally honest and just tell the truth. And that, that is also one of the axioms I think in, in rock music as well, or it should be, we strive to be, um, or any music, you know, just be honest. Right. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and so that's the music that's come out since, uh, since the bridges, EPs have come out and okay. that you've been hearing since 2016. So speaking of that word, honest, did you write that song? I did. I did. I actually co-wrote it with Billy Dean. Okay. A great artist and writer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to tell you, I'm in love with that song. <laughs> Your voice is amazing. <laughs> and it's, it's so it, it starts out kind of with this melancholy feel, but it just ends up being like very uplifting and and there's just something about the melody that just the very first time I heard it, I was like, wow, <laughs> this is great. And you just perform it so well. I love it. Thank you. I, I that means so much to me. I, I really appreciate it. You know, the, the story behind that song, it, I mean, it literally was that moment when you just, again, just want to like shed the layers and can we just be real mm-hmm. for a minute? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I remember the night that it happened. Um, and it's, you know, it's a true story, you know, mm-hmm. somewhere I'm like, can we just get out of here and <laughs> fill our guts for a minute, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it, it means a great deal to me that you appreciate the song. Thank you. You are very welcome. And yeah, thanks for writing it and singing <laughs> it. <laughs> it's really great. <laughs> it does seem like, and, hmm, you know, we were talking a little bit about this, or maybe we almost talked about this at the beginning <laughs> that, Getting older does, I don't know, it, it does inspire within us, not to say that we are less sincere or less in touch with ourselves, but I guess more reflective. Um, mm-hmm. They're not a question there. Or maybe, okay, it, it, you know, you're describing that. Whatever. Okay, that's an observation. <laughs> Never mind. Um, he does I that. Know, I don't know where he that was going. He likes to make that observations. I'll just cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> It's good. Your observations are great. <laughs> I think Alex Winter once told me when I don't have a question, just at the end of it, say, well, what are your thoughts about that? <laughs> After I make a statement, um, you remind me that when you mentioned though, um, the struggles of being a female artist in particular mm. in your journey, as you are developing as an artist, even as a young age, do you find a particular affinity for a female artist in particular? Were there ones you felt more aligned with or close to as far as, uh, Style, content, theme, et cetera? You know, growing up, um, it was very much both male and female. Um, you know, it was it, from the female side of me, I mentioned many of them, but also I put in, um, you know, Chrissy Hind and mm-hmm. um, Joni Mitchell, Janice Joplin. I mean, the, the list literally goes on and on. Um, and on mm-hmm. the male side of me, it was very much, um, besides Queen, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it just, there again, also goes on and on cream. Um, mm-hmm. But I would say, you know, going through my career and really relying on those givens that I had, again, there was that word, but it's, that's why it's so important to, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I got to meet some of my heroes. I got to meet Joan Jett a few times, um, you know, yeah. and she was just the nicest, coolest person. And I was just Thank you for not being a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Sometimes we meet our heroes and we're like, oh my God. Right. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm answering your question exactly, but I, I would just say, um, mm-hmm. it's very like in, empowering and, um, you know, kind of just strengthened my will to see other women who have done it. But I will say that stylistically, particularly in the two, in the, you know, in the two thousands and, and that whole like 15 like, or 13 year era, I was doing like much harder rock and all that coming out of alt rock from the nineties. And as soon as the 2000s, there was this like rock revival in New York. And I'm talking like Van Halen and mm-hmm. all the like, you know, staunch rock and roll um, and all the nights and all the clubs and everything we did at CBGB's up until it closed and Don Hills. And mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know, I can, we can, we can talk about that in its own show and its own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really the guys that I, that I was trying to emulate more, you know, mm-hmm. Murphy and Robert Plant and Roger mm-hmm. Dolce and, mm-hmm. you know, some of those, um, oh God, um, David Lee Roth, dare I say, but yeah. just <laughs> attitude and being like, yeah, I'm a girl doing it. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> there's that. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it was uh-huh. I mean, at the end of the day, I had a ball. I said what I needed to say. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and now I'm a little older and I just, I appreciate it all in a different way. I'm so glad I had a chance to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can see that early D- David Lee Roth and some of your early performances and the attitude. Yeah. Oh, all attitude. I will say this and I don't know that I will <laughs> leave this in the show. I look to be an ally to all sorts of folks, you know, and certainly when uh, we had, I had an opportunity to speak to a woman who is a, uh, a gamer. She does, she's a, a YouTube, you know, a, a person icon or personality in Twitch and that sort of thing. And I said to her, because she's a gamer, I knew she was getting a lot of uh, hate email and threats from, from men, you know, these folks. And I said, how can we talk about this in a way that may be helpful? And she said, what you could do is don't talk about it. Don't bring up the fact that I'm a woman. Just treat mm-hmm. me like you would anybody else. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it becomes tricky because when you want to be able to advocate, I've got two girls. I, I would I don't need to have a wife and two girls to appreciate the fact that I want everyone to be treated equally, but I happen to. Right. Um, but it becomes a challenge or a question for me, like how can we talk about these issues in a way that you can get to a point where no one's asking you, what are your female influences? Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know mm-hmm. the answer. Right. But that's, that's a really good point, Will. And I'll say that, you know, the thing that always uh, was so irritating and is still so irritating is when somebody says, oh, you're good for a girl. You know, <laughs> or, you know one of my pet peeves was always going to a guitar shop, you know, particularly like in college, you know, mm-hmm. like in early, you know, in the early formative years, I'm like 20 years old. And they're like, oh, are you thinking some man for your boyfriend? I'm like, wow. really? The assumptions. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Or like being backstage and they're like, like no girlfriends backstage. I'm like, I'm the f-ing singer. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. so a lot of that attitude came through the music. I do think though, it is, it is important to see people like you who look like you or had your experience doing it because mm-hmm. it really does. It's, it's a weird thing in our heads. We're like, Oh, well they're doing it. Therefore like it makes sense for me to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is also very much, just learning to support each other, no matter like what your experience is or what you look. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's just good. You just like it. It's, yeah. it's not mm-hmm. necessarily like, well, that's good for a white girl, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, the thing that sucks is you can't teach empathy. Like, I don't know if there's some kind of thing that's you can. Early. That's early stuff. <laughs> that's like young, young. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah, you mentioned uh, getting to meet some of your idols. What is it mm, like yeah. when you are, well, what is the first gig, I guess, where you get to open from some, for someone who's, you know, this, we're an 80s show. So some 80s icon, 
what is that like to know you're going to do that and ultimately step on that stage? It's definitely surreal. And it, you know, you think of your, you know, younger self, like if you were 10, you know, could have told your 10 or 15 year old self, like one day you'll open up for Twisted Sister or, <laughs> or Bon Jovi, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, just the, 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 I, you know, the list that I've been fortunate enough to work with is, I mean, I just, again, I feel so grateful that mm-hmm. these, um, you know, really established artists and artists that I looked up to. And yes, artists I watched on NTV, which was a very big deal. Obviously, yes. just the iconic imagery. I mean, there's, there's no other feeling like it of having them, you know, and I, and I would say like the guys were really, generous with me and just sort of propped up, you know, me as their little sister in rock and roll, you know, really gave me an opportunity and somebody who was, you know, just independent and just slugging it out and, you know, doing what I do, but it it definitely is full circle. And I I would say the most full circle, bizarre experience was opening for Bon Jovi at, which at Brendan Bird Arena and Continental Airlines Arena. And it was like, I can't believe I'm here. Like it just, like it happened so fast. I was like, I don't even know what happened. You know, right. but you performed in Brandon Vern Arena. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. In 2005. That's um, so amazing. And it was, I mean, it was incredible and it was bizarre. And I was like, when do I get to do that again? <laughs> but, um, I yeah, love that. So blessed. And there may very well be some little girl or boy. See now I'm talking now. Yeah. That mm-hmm. has the experience you did when you saw Culture Club. I want to do That's that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you and me. So that is uh, amazing. Over the last couple of years, obviously, we both well, has it been two years yet? Almost. We've been dealing with the pandemic, but you've continued to write music and create. What is the process like collaborating? I guess over the internet, right, or meetings like we're having right now. Yeah, I mean, everybody's definitely had to up their tech game mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's not obviously not the same as being in person, but it's something mm-hmm. and something was better than nothing during the pandemic. Um, I did do some zoom writing. I did do some, you know, pre-production work with my band, you know, on some new uh, songs, which mm-hmm. is a, uh, there'll be some new music next year to share with you. Yay. Um, awesome. but, uh, but the thing that I really kind of weirdly dug into was live streaming shows for my den and you know like mm-hmm. you know bill and i my husband we were in you know new york city for 13 weeks when everything locked down in our two-bedroom apartment just sort of like locked down <laughs> and i was like well maybe i'll start live streaming acoustic shows from the den like and it's just <laughs> this weekly thing and it was a way to at least to connect with people and it's just solo acoustic for an audience mm-hmm. one, you know like a live audience of one yep. mm-hmm. um, but it, i found it um, really fun and just a way to focus on other things. You know, I mean, I am a person who very much chooses to focus on what you have, not what you don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do don't have. Um, and between that, the songwriting, and then just we're shooting videos during the pandemic. I mean, I got mm-hmm. a deep dive into something I've wanted to do for a long time, which was you know, just make more music videos and not for the sake of just making content, if you will, mm. but to make short shorts, to make those mini movies, you know, yeah. like, you know, the, the, again, MTV and growing up in the eight, I just, I loved it. I loved, I mean, some of course were better than, than others, <laughs> but even like the whole iconic, you know, thriller video in, in its long form, mm-hmm. inspired 
I mean, just form wise, you know, and just having a narrative and it inspired the last video I did, um, called alone mm-hmm. where we, you know, shot in three different locations during the pandemic, total gorilla crew. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was down and dirty, but we got it done. And, um, yeah, I, I think the pandemic is this time has been incredibly challenging for everybody, obviously some more than others. Um, mm-hmm for all the reasons which we we know very well but um every day is a gift man yep. so i was just try and make the most of it you know mm-hmm. try and stay positive and productive and healthy and support others as much as you can is your song and video for strong was that a um direct result from the pandemic or was that something you had already been working on no, well the song had been recorded and i was planning on releasing it but i again really felt like well, everything was on hold, you know, since March, 2020. Yep. And I really wanted to release a song, but I, I really wanted the video as well. Mm-hmm. So I contacted a friend of mine, um, Toje and, uh, fabulous director and, um, Toje Abbott. And he, um, I said, so should you be willing to accept this mission? <laughs> we got four weeks to make a video, write it, produce it, edit it, and launch it. Do you accept it? It's like, okay, sure. And we just worked on his film, um, A New York Christmas Wedding, um, which I, which he cast me in as a veterinarian who gets to put down a dog within the first five minutes of the movie. Wow. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and so the storyline, you know, it was right before the election, it wasn't meant it's, I don't get on purpose. I don't like to include politics in my music. Um, mm-hmm. but I thought it was really, really important that people uh, make their voice heard and vote no matter who you mm-hmm. vote. Like, I don't care. Just be part of the process. Like we need to figure things out. Mm-hmm. So we, um, yeah, we made, <laughs> we made that video in a weekend in October. It's, it's a year ago this month. Wow. And right. it was, it was fun but it was uh, you know talk about pedal to the metal it's like we got to uh, come out before election day like a good two weeks before and here so but yeah so that was fun and working with uh, the girls um at the mott haven academy um they're they're a charter school in the south bronx and my friends neff and jimmy bones uh, jimmy bones was in my band they do a, a music program for these kids Mm-hmm. And other like at-risk kids and foster system. And it's just, it's anyway, that's a whole other thing. But it was, it was such a great experience. And we just were pulling in strangers off the street just to get these different images of different people and women around New York. And mm-hmm. so, um, you'd yeah. never know that it was a pressure cooker behind yeah. that. Well, that's good. Yeah, no. <laughs> cool. So talking about work, uh, new music coming up, I know you said we have to wait till next year. All right, it's getting close. So we can wait a little longer to hear some new music, but we also know that you have your annual fall ball coming up. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So it's the third annual fall ball. Um, we have to skip last year, of course, mm-hmm. but it's at the cutting room Friday, November 19th. It is a, uh, a music extravaganza, rock and roll dance party. Um, it starts with acoustic performers and then there's um, a DJ and then uh, my band does an electric set. We had a little change of plans for this one. I'm actually doing two sets that night. So I'm doing a full acoustic set and then doing a full electric set with the band. And I will be playing 
new songs that are coming out next year. So there's, there's a lot of debut. There's a lot of things happening, but um, it's a super fun party and it's a great chance for people to get together and having not been able to perform for literally two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is going to be a, like a great coming home special night. So excellent. I'm easily vaccinated to come okay. in. So just mm-hmm. putting that out there. Mm-hmm. And we just mm-hmm. go to queenv.com to find out more about how we can do that. Okay. So that show is November 19th and we're assuming, and then November 20th, you just sleep for the whole day. Probably. (laughs) I end up hanging out with my friends who have flown in for the show. (laughs) It ends up being a great reunion with everybody. So I I end up sleeping. Two hours. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a super, yeah, it's a super fun weekend. And it's, it's always the um, the weekend before Thanksgiving. So it's flow out before the holidays hit and. Yeah, like a homecoming sort of thing. Boy, we could use it right now. Oh, very yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's always such a joy to speak with someone, not only who is living their, you know, life's dream, but a dream that began in the 1980s. You got it. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's such a pleasure to, to see you and talk with you and long live the 80s. I can't imagine what it would be like to, you know, grow up listening to an inspired by, let's say, Bon Jovi, Billy oh Idol. Gosh, right? And then yes. open for them? At that arena? Yeah. In a huge well, arena? you saw concerts too? Where she might've been yeah. at the same concert? I mean, who knows? Oh Whatever. my gosh. Yeah. She might've been, yeah, just a row away. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's- <laughs> I had no uh, idea. It's, a, it's, it's great to see some, someone, you know, sort of, you know, evolve during that period of time. And also, you know, much like the bands we were talking about earlier, um, mm-hmm. sound continue to change and grow with the person. Absolutely. Okay. Hey, our show is brought to you in part by the many wonderful patrons that, uh, patrons, patrons that support it, including John Henderson, <laughs> Bart Arnold, <laughs> Craig Coletta, and John Kaminsky. Thank you so very much. And you can help support the creation of future episodes by going to patreon.com slash 1980s now. <laughs> wonderful. That what? sounded professional. Oh. Hmm. And we will be professional next time when we speak to you again on 1980s Now. See ya. Later. Later.